Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey, absolutely delighted to have this opportunity to interview Lisa Cohn, who is the author of both The Power of Thoughtful Leadership and her award-winning memoir titled To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence. Lisa will be speaking to us today from Wayne, Pennsylvania, where she lives with her husband, Bruce, and their two children. Lisa, who has an MBA, is an accomplished leadership consultant, executive coach, and keynote speaker with a creative approach to business. Her creative business approach incorporates what she learned along her life journey through what was her bizarre and way out childhood, as well as the leadership best practices she has gleaned from her many years in business. Born in New Jersey to hippie parents and raised in New York City's East Village in the 1970s, Lisa's early years were a mixture of encounter groups, primal screams, macrobiotic diets, communes, Indian ashrams, Jefferson Airplane concerts in Central Park, and watching naked actors on off-Broadway stages during the musical Hair. By the time her older brother was 10, Lisa's father had him smoking pot. By the time Lisa was 10, Lisa's mother had them pledging their lives to the Unification Church, also called the Moonies, and the Moonies' self-appointed Messiah, the Reverend Sun Myung Moon. I'm looking forward to talking with Lisa about her inspiring message of hope for those who feel hopeless and beyond repair, about staying out of and getting out of extremist situations, and why we as a species need a huge dose of self-love and self-compassion. This is surely going to be a riveting interview that illumines how healing can lead to rebirth. Hi, Lisa, a warm, truly heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Your book is amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And so wonderful to meet you and to be with you today, Irene. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. My pleasure and my honor. Lisa, your book, To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence, like I said, it's remarkable. Please describe the ecstatic comfort of inclusion in a cult that you experienced when you were a child and the torment of rebelling against the cult as a teenager. Nothing unexciting or colorful about your life. <laughs> oh yeah what i what i try to explain to people is that by the time we joined the church the cult unification church it was a haven for my brother and i because life was so chaotic my parents split when i was three it was all those things you describe 
I was terrified. I knew my, I was afraid my mom would leave too. My brother smoking pot. It was all this insanity. We were just hippie kids, right? It was the sixties, early sixties, mid sixties. And so when we joined, I like to say my mom stopped cursing. She started wearing a bra. There were rules. She just became more, it's hard to say normal, but normal. Like Mooney's dressed really conservatively. And we were surrounded by members, brothers and sisters who loved us and adored us. And, and there's nothing more intoxicating than having a Messiah, than having the absolute truth, even when it's not true. It is the most powerful, intoxicating drug ever. And I've done a couple of them. And uh, so, so growing up in that, you know, it was when you know that God has chosen you and God has been suffering for 6,000 years. And if you, if you give your blood, sweat and tears, you can help ease God's heart and you're blessed beyond belief to know the Messiah. And I was blessed beyond belief to be friends with his kids. It is, you know, when you're on the inside, it is a powerful, wonderful experience, wonderful experience as as horrific as it is, right? I mean, extremist situations are terrifying, but we are drawn to them as human animals. We crave certainty, purpose, and community, and it gives you absolute certainty, a purpose you'll never replicate, and a community beyond belief as long as you follow the rules. So you felt safe there. Safe, but yeah, because I was I was a terrified kid um, before all this happened, you know, with all the, my dad's rage and my mom's behavior, like all the craziness that happened. And, um, and then even when we were, you know, we had this weird experience, um, and I'll go into it, but we had this weird experience of being members of the church, but living with my dad. So we lived with Satan, right? Sex, drugs, and squalor. And he used to offer to sell me to his friends for cocaine. And it was just a crazy existence. So that was terrifying. So the church felt safe. It felt true, true parents, true Messiah, true children, the truth. And it felt safe. And, um, whole as as not safe and not whole as it was you know um what i just want to ask as an aside what made sun young moon decide he was the messiah well he didn't decide when he was 15 years old he was praying in the mountains in, in korea and jesus appeared to him and said that jesus had not fulfilled his mission jesus was supposed to come to earth marry and bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. Bring Adam and Eve were supposed to grow to fruition and bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. And they failed. And then everybody failed along the years and centuries. It was like he had a psychotic episode while he was praying. <laughs> Jesus was supposed to do the same. And so he came to Moon and said, please fulfill my mission. And Moon, I think, supposedly refused him three times and then finally said, yes, I will. Well, that's one version. That's, <laughs> that's one the version. church version. The non-church version is... Uh, Moon, I, I, you know, I, I kind of get the, the chronology kind of messed up, kind of confused, because when you're in the church, you know, none of this, but the research I've done, not necessarily since leaving the church, but since the book came out in 2018, and really being involved in the, the cult survivor community, is Moon founded some sort of sex cult, religious sex cult, there's a lot of practice in Korea of purification through sex, so like if I am ordained by God, I sleep with all the people around me and then they are ordained by God, that kind of thing. Great, mm. it's great. And so, and then um, he got put into the communist prison camps where he learned a lot of 
indoctrination practices, mind control practices. He learned a lot of the, the practices he used when he decided to make this actually a religious cult and declare himself the Messiah. He actually was crowned, he and Hak Jahan, his wife were crowned emperor and empress of the universe in Congress by Congress people, right? And that's how connected and amazing he was. So yeah, he'd used all these practices. To Congress people of the United States? Whoa. Crowned emperor and empress of the universe. Yes. Anyway, so 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 yeah, Jesus came to him. He had all these practices. Uh, I, someone, when the book came out, I was interviewed. I was on the Megyn Kelly show and I was interviewed for the backstory. And they said, do you think he actually believed that he was the Messiah? And I said, if enough people bow to you for long enough, you start to believe it. Right. So I do think at some point he did believe it. But so that's yeah. So that's the. Wow. 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 Yeah. So what happened when you rebelled against all of this? And so, what, what, what triggered that? And I know what triggered it, but tell everyone what triggered yeah. that. Yeah. So, so right. Start over like we're, my parents get married really young. My parents split. We live with my mom. I'm terrified. We're supposed to go move on to a commune. Instead, we move with my grandparents because my grandmother's sick. My grandmother passes. We stay with my grandfather. My mom finally meets Moon. Here's Moon speak and starts to get involved and gets heavily involved. And six months after she got involved, after she brought us up to, to meet, you know, at Barrytown and Sea Moon and all of that. She sat us down and she said, um, I feel like I need to be more involved. What do you think I should do? And my older brother and I said, you should go, you should leave. <laughs> so she left and she moved into the church, ironically, to help the group, which was for people who had kids and couldn't move in. And more ironically, she spent almost all her time in the church raising other people's children. To this day, I meet people who say, oh, your mother loved me so much. Um, so that's her life. And we're living with my dad and we're going there every weekend, every holiday, even when she wasn't around, I would go to the church. I just, it was only where I wanted to be. And then the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, my father, Danny, still to this day, call him Danny. Danny sent me away to music camp. I'm convinced to this day to keep me away from the church. Cause again, I spent all my time there and he never spent any money on me. So he spent money, sent me to music camp. And I became friends with people who for the first time known to me were queer, which is a huge sin in my church, homosexuality, all of that huge sin. So I write to my mom and I say, what should I do? And she says, they're evil, they're sinful. You can convert them or just stay away from them. And for the first Owie. time- what? Wowee, I said. Wowee, right? Right. These are well, your choices. What right? was your mother's first name, by the way? Danny and? Mimi. Mimi. Or Mim. Mim, yeah. Not mommy and daddy. Danny and Mimi, yes. So, but when, but when we joined the church, I started calling her mother because that's, you know, the right way to be. But so I wrote to mother and she says, stay away from them. They're evil. And for the first time, I don't agree because I love these people. They're wonderful people. And, you know, and, and so I'm confused. And you have to understand we were literally taught, this is brilliant. We were literally taught that if we ever questioned anything, it's Satan and evil spirits inside us trying to win us back from God, right? So as soon as you question any doctrine, anything Moon says, anything you're told to do, you're terrified because you know Satan is in you. And so you don't let yourself think those things. It's brilliant, it's brilliant. It's control. It's control. control. It's absolute ultimate way. I still have a hard time thinking for myself and I am 58 years old and I left when I was 18 to 20, right? It's still difficult 40 years later for me to do this. So 
but I didn't, I didn't agree. And so I came home from music camp knowing that I'm sinful and evil, which I always knew anyway, and, and that Satan's inside me. And so, and I, I alluded to this before, I'm not just in the church, but I'm best friends with Moon's children. And they're called the true children because they are the, the children of the Messiah. And then there are blessed children. The blessed children are the children who are born without original sin. They're very special. And they're born to the people in those huge mass weddings that Moon presided over. I always say to people, the best seats I ever had at Madison Square Garden were at my mother's wedding because my mom got married on July 1st, 1982 with 2,075 other couples. And I had red seats on the floor. So there's the true children and the blessed children. And then there's sinful me. You are the sinful children. I'm the sinful, sinful, awful child. Even though your mother is giving her life to the church, doesn't Still matter. It doesn't matter. I am sinful, right? And, and I'm not deserving to be friends with these true children and blessed children. But I come home from music yeah. camp and one of my blessed children friends, my 16-year-old friend, had been seduced by our Sunday school teacher. She's having an affair with him and he does get her pregnant. And I know none of this. And in order to keep anyone from noticing, she spreads rumors about me. She says that I want to have sex with all the brothers, which is the hugest sin. It's the cause of the fall of man, premarital sex. So she spreads these rumors. Moon hears these rumors, believes these rumors, and makes a decree that only blessed children can be with the true children that, to keep me away. So I like to say- Well, wait, I, I want to hear what happened to, the, to her when she was pregnant and all that, and her secret came out. It was awful. It was awful. I mean, I, I was not there at the time, um, but I, I have reconnected with her. But yeah, she was made to have a very, very late term abortion. Her father beat her and made her older brother beat her beyond, beyond. Yeah, it was, yeah, she got blamed. He got, he got sent off to Alaska and she got blamed, right? And it was awful. Wow. Yeah, very, she, very, very enlightened, Mr. Moon. Very, very, very not enlightened at all. So I come back from music camp. I find this out. I hear this. And as I like to say, the Messiah banished me. So I go to my senior year of high school, knowing Satan is inside me and knowing the Messiah knows Satan is inside me. Not a good. And so I make this, I think, okay, I followed my mother into the church at the age of 10. I wasn't an adult. So now at the age of 17, I'm going to pull back a little bit and then make an adult decision to come back and never question again. And I start hanging out with people more, having friends outside the church. I get really drunk, really drunk at a party and a boy kisses me and I kiss him back and I have a boyfriend and all hell breaks loose and because that's really a sin. Long story short, I, uh, I go off to college. He stays in New York City and I go off up to Ithaca, New York and I determine I will break up with him and I don't. Um, and I slowly start to pull away, but uh, it takes me years. When I left, I knew Moon was the Messiah and I was a failure and I self-punished beyond belief. Um, it just took me years to even realize anything. And I kind of went like this. I spent most of my life like this. Oh my <laughs> God. Brother, the other day I said to my older brother, cause you know, like, wow, it must've been really, really unbelievably traumatizing for us to go back and forth between the cult and my dad and the cult and my dad. We literally went back and forth. He was the antithesis of Moon. It was, it was, and neither, right? And Robbie goes, I don't know. I wasn't there. Because <laughs> we both were like this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow, wow, wow. So that's the, it's a long story. That's the long story. No, no, I'm glad you're spelling it out. It's an amazing story. So in your book, To the Moon and Back, you state that forgiveness is giving up all hope of a different past. Yeah. 
Your mother's world was the fanatical, puritanical cult of the Moonies. Your father's world was based on sex, drugs, and the squalor of life in New York City's East Village in the 70s. How were you able to accept and forgive? If you were able to accept and forgive your parents, anyone can. And what is your relationship with each of them like now? So I do believe that's an Anne Lamott quote, and it's a beautiful quote, right? Um, and whereas I wouldn't wish my past on anyone, I wouldn't wish trauma on anyone, I do know that it has given me, me. And I am who I am because of, in spite of and because of, and you know, owning all of that. And it's a journey, it's a hell of a journey. Um, and so the, the journey with my parents has been a long journey. It still is a long journey. Uh, my brother and I jokes, my, my mother is often easier for him to come to terms with and my father is often easier for me, but neither one is easy. I'll start with my father, Danny. Um, I do, this is going to sound really weird, right? You know, it like, I started healing when someone, when I did get engaged to an active alcoholic who was quite abusive. And I, uh, someone pointed me to Al-Anon, right? The 12-step program for those of us with our arms clasped around the alcoholic. And one of the things they say is you're exactly where you're supposed to be, which, which is great, but that means that the other people are exactly where they're supposed to be, which is still, I didn't like that part. And I, I do believe that my parents did the best they could. Um, sometimes that's hard to accept and some, but it is the truth, right? And I, if I start with Danny, Right. I do know, I do believe that one, he did everything that he did, including having my brother smoke pot at the age of 10, because it would be fun, with our best interests in mind, thinking he was given this is open, free, wonderful experience. And um, he had a stroke 14 years ago. Um, I've been his primary caregiver the whole time. He is now about 15 minutes away in a very roller coaster, slow process of dying, not dying, dying, not dying, dying. Not He's dying. kind of dying the way he lived. As one of my friends said when he, uh, <laughs> I, I came back, I, I took a weekend away because I do see him every day. And I took a weekend away and he came back and told me that he missed me and that I was gone too long. And that he said, I, I, um, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but I will. He said, I'm falling in love with you more and more. And I'm like, oh, and he goes, but sometimes it's not as a daughter. It's more as a lover. And I was like, oh, my, oh. <laughs> One of my high school friends said people die as they live. Right. And that's my father, completely inappropriate. Um, but my ability to forgive him, I am graced with the ability to have a lot of love and to hold dualities. And I've had to learn to have anger, right? That has had to be a learning for me. Um, but, but the ability to hold the space of as hard and as much as it hurts, he did it. He did the best he could. I know where he didn't his- do it malevolently. Was. He did it. He never did it malevolently. Really, he never, like he didn't do anything to harm us even though it harmed us. And I know why he's as limited as he is because I know what his parental situation was. And I have to tell you, and I, the, the last, you know, dying, not dying last few months, literally declared actively dying and then not and declared actively dying and then not um, on hospice has been, he has said things that I never thought he'd say. It's like his heart is finally cracked open and he's finally able to admit love and feel love that never did I ever know my father loved me. Like I never knew my dad loved me because Danny was just not that kind. So how do I find forgiveness? I am graced with the ability to love 
perhaps to a fault, but it is my, it is who I am. You know, I lead with love. I am love and body. That's the name I was given in my positive psychology course. It's the only thing that I know that heals and I choose to love. So I am, so that's Danny. So I have a relationship with him. I'm going to get off this podcast and drive the 15 minutes and give him a pint of ice cream and see if he's responsive or not responsive and where he is today and, and cry because- you know, The blessing of him taking so long and saying all the things he has to say to you is that it's giving you both closure. He's eventually going to go to the other side and get a life review. And the loving part will be very healing for him. Thank God for him. You know, what breaks my heart most is that he has not been able to- express this for and he's only 78 years old he's been in a nursing home for 14 years since he was in his 60s but to be able to express love he's never been able to do that and so it's a blessing in its way it is a blessing and even my mom will say like I did that I helped him crack open so he could actually finally express and feel the love you know when I when we first started he said, I said, I love you. Do you know that? And he goes, I th- what did he say? I forget what he would say. And now he says, I know that, right? And I'm like, I know he loves me. He said, did you know what I, that I loved you when I was a kid? I'm like, I never knew that you loved me when I was a kid. I never knew that. I never did, right? Um, but now I do. So it's a, it's a gift. It's a horrific, hard, wearying, tiring, heartbreaking in a different way, everyday gift. That's, you know, that's, that's my dad. That's dad. Now let's talk about me. My Mimi, my, my mom, my mom left the church in 96 when my young, older child was born. And it's definitely been a, a, a story, right? It's, it's harder because my dad, I know why he's that way. My mother, I, other than the fact that she was, if they use the term brainwashed, she was not of her own mind, right? We are all susceptible. We are all susceptible. And the only way I can wrap my head around the fact my mom left us and many other things she did along the way is because when you are in that sort of a situation, you have no choice but to do what you're told and to believe what you're told. It's how your brain works. Um, and so over the years, we've really worked on it. And um, yeah, we're still in a process of ironing it out. You know, it, you know, even when the book came out, my mom didn't even realize the impact of what she did. I don't think until very recently. Right. She would say things like, I hope you get over this soon. And why are you still upset about that? And wow. Just do things that I would never do or act towards me in a way I would never act to my children. But she's different. And, and you know, both my parents are better grandparents than they were parents. And I she basically abandoned you throughout your childhood. And adulthood because she's, I mean, she kept the same path. Literally, she'd say, when are you going to get over this? And my therapist would say, tell her that when she stops still doing it, you'll get over because she still has a pattern of if things get too much for her, she runs. Right. And, and as someone who's scar, my, you know, one of my biggest scars is my mom leaving, not just leaving, but asking us what we should do so we could tell her to leave. And we were always told how lucky we were that she left and that we could live without her because we were suffering for God. So you could never miss her. And then, you know, she- again, They she denied your feelings. They denied your, they denied your emotions. I had no emotions. I had no emotions. I was, right, I was only lucky. And right, and, and she would like never be alone with us and never like, she would say something when my father uh, had a stroke and he was all, you know, disheveled and the, his assisted living room was really awful and gross. And she was like, how can he be like this? And we're like, he's always like this. You just never came you weren't there anyway so it's yeah what was her childhood like 
did she was did she have a stable childhood to to be able to be influenced like this she did have a stable childhood um she did have a stable childhood I would say that um you know what dawned on me and you know as you look for reasons my mom when she was three years old I think she was running and she was carrying a a cat piggy bank like a ceramic cat and she fell and she sliced her her right hand the tendons in her right hand and now is left-handed and can't really use her right hand and if you stop and think about in the in the early 40s you know what that must have done how she must have been terrified how they must have treated her how they probably never told her what was going on to this day she has a really hard time with any anything medical right but of course right and yeah trauma 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 untreated trauma she had this untreated trauma and you know and then my grandfather was a judge and he was just very strict and very conservative and so you know yeah so yeah okay um and so uh yeah so but it's the I have the choice of not having them in my life or finding a way to have them in my life. And one, I often do it with big buffers. My dad always, Danny always had a big buffer. Now it's much less so as he's chained. My mom never had a buffer. And then there was a while there was a really big buffer somewhat recently because I'm like, you keep doing these things and saying these things that cut me to the core. So I can't be around you. I can be around you, but I can't let you close. And then sometimes I let her closer and then it happens and we have the conversation again and then we work it out. It's like always this work out. And it's very hard to navigate an adult relationship when there's this traumatized child in you that says, but you left. You, like you, you did this. But so again, you do traumatize children who are dealing with each other because she yeah. hasn't healed her part either. Yeah, and she, and she has owned the impact. She, she once said, even after she owned the impact, she once said, I never felt like I left you because you were always in my heart. And I'm like, let's be really clear. You left and you never came back, right? And, but she's, she's owned it more and more. And as she's, that is also a, a grace from, you know, the universe. Right, because, right. because I can, you know, when it feels not, when it feels validating or less invalidating. Absolutely. Until it can be more open. Absolutely. But it's, it's, a process. it's a lot of trauma therapy. It's a lot of therapy. Oh my God, yes. It's an absolute choice and it's a choice to have her in my kids' lives, but it's an absolute choice to protect myself when necessary, but open my heart because I would rather have it. And I, I do love my parents. I do, right? I, you know, I do. Well, their genes put together are a stellar person. I mean, they were just not so cool about how they applied. They were they, babies. They didn't, they were like, they had yeah. my brother when they were 18 and me when they were 20 and they didn't know what they were doing. And it was the sixties and yeah. Ta-da. There Ta-da. it goes. Ta-da. Well, now, now I'm going to have you do, give a mind-boggling review of the abuse scars, addictions, and inner demons you struggled with that led you to almost jump off a bridge, become anorexic, take lots of cocaine, and get into dysfunctional relationships, including the one with the active al- alcoholic. Where would you like to begin? <laughs> Again... You know, when I, by the time we got to the church, there was already a lot of trauma. I probably was molested at a very young age, right? There was trauma with my mom, trauma with my dad. I already knew there was something inherently wrong with me and I was terrified. And then we got into a cult where it was reinforced that there was a lot wrong with me. <laughs> um, and and if I do have like the sexual trauma and all this stuff about sex, and I was so mistreated by so many brothers, older men in the church, like there was just a lot of really bad, bad forces around me who were also my anchors, right? And 
And what about text messages? What oh, I got so messages? many oh, my God. inappropriate missed messages. And I was such a straight, like such a goody two shoes little kid. And um, I mean, when I left, I I still knew him was that he was the Messiah. I just didn't want to do it. Right. And I have a dear friend who said to me when I kept going, what if it's right? What if it's right? He's finally said, what if it is right, but it's not right for you? And for whatever, I clung to that. Mm. But I knew that I was failing. I was breaking God's heart. I was causing mankind to suffer for thousands of years more. None of this is true, but this is exactly what we were told. And so the moment on the bridge, it's my freshman year, I went to Cornell where they, you know, they romanticized the bridges and the jumping. And I remember standing on the bridge and knowing that it would be a better choice to die than to leave. Luckily I didn't, I don't know why. And, and the thing is, is I always look so functional on the outside because I'm an overachiever because those are some of my scars, my perfectionism and my overachieving and my pleasing and my sweetness and um, my coping mechanisms. You know, that was freshman year, um, sophomore year, I had sex with my boyfriend and then I proceeded to stop eating. And I am like, I don't know, I was 30 You're pounds. You're not exactly less. big now. I was 30 pounds or 35 pounds less then than I am now, right? And I, uh, you know, because I was, it was something I could control and I was punishing myself for the sin of leaving. And, and I went into therapy, never mentioning the church because I knew that if I mentioned the church, the therapist would judge me, right? It, you know. And then junior year, Adam, my boyfriend, started dealing cocaine and doing cocaine. And that was like the drug of choice because it made you thin, it made you smart, it made you powerful. And I did a hella, hella, hell of a lot did of you that. Did you do cocaine with your father also? Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like a stranger to it. So the best seats I ever had at Madison Square Garden were at my mother's wedding. And the best cocaine I ever had was for my father's friend the judge who yes, literally was a judge of a town that we have talked about that I won't mention. And um, literally, you know, I'm at a book reading once and Adam is my high school boyfriend. And I say that, and there's this, there's this night many years ago, right? Obviously decades ago, Adam and I are hanging out and this judge, he's going out with Danny. He goes, Hey kids, you doing anything tonight? And we're like, no, we're just hanging out. And he takes up this huge bag and a huge tea tablespoon. And he like puts these two heaping mounds of cocaine on a block and walks out and we tried to finish it and we couldn't. And so when I- How I old said, were you at this time? How old were you? Uh, 19. My 19, gosh. 19. And so when I, I said this line at a book reading and Adam from the back goes, yeah, it was a really good cocaine. <laughs> like Danny, I, used to do, I used to do coke with Danny. It was the closest I've ever been with him. Like we do all this blow and then he'd take me out to dinner and yell at me for not eating because of my anorexia. It was whatever. So yeah, that was, that was junior year. And then senior year, I just started getting into more and more abusive relationships until until the act of alcohol, because 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 I didn't even know it. Right. When I got engaged to this active alcoholic, I have a cousin who sent me to Al-Anon and I go to my first meeting and I think, tell me if he's an alcoholic. There's no way I would ever be with an alcoholic because I'm way too smart for that. And right, Danny drank and drug every day of my life. There's addiction all over my father's family. And I grew up in a cult. But when I left, I, if I thought about it, I had to die. So I didn't, so I just had no concept. And so it's a feeling of self-loathing, self-revulsion, that there are no words that are 
powerful enough to describe. It is this feeling of just like, oh, just again, revulsion and loathing of myself that I did not even know I felt. And honestly, I used to think my biggest tape, like harmful tape was I'm not enough. My biggest harmful tape, the one that goes through my head at my deepest, darkest moments is you should have died. You should have jumped. There's no, you, you deserved to die. No redemption for you, girl. No redemption. No for redemption for you. And wow. that, right? And that, I, so let's, let's flash forward. I am happy. I am healthy. I am whole. I am functional. I have so much joy and love in my life. I have problems like everybody, but I do. But there are these deeply, deeply carved into my brain and my psyche by the cult, right? Intentionally carved into my brain and my psyche to control me. That, that in my deepest, darkest moments, are there, right? And I have, they're much less than they are now. Normally when they hit, I can now breathe through them and know what they are. But man, when I first found them, it was, I could not, yeah, I can't even describe the, the depth of pain, self-revulsion, self-revulsion and loathing. So how did you heal this stuff? Tell us about your journey of healing that helps you to purge your pain, mend your yes. wounds, change those thought patterns, which some of them are still there and search your soul for a sense of self-worth. That's some assignment. Yeah, uh, it started in Al-Anon, 12-step program. Thank God for those, right? They were my lifesaver for a long time. And then therapy and more therapy. And- um, You left it for therapy. You took yourself into therapy. Took you myself into people. therapy. And then I took myself into trauma therapy, specifically for me, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy. I've done a lot of different kinds of therapy. Um, it's, it's been a long, I have a certification in positive psychology. I like, I have embraced anything that can ease the ability, ease the, the pain and what was in there, you know? And, it, and like, since the book came out, it's so like, since the book came out, in 2018, and I found the cult survivor community, and specifically, it's called the second gens, second generations. There is actually a cult survivor community. Is it nationwide, or is it local, or? Yes, nationwide, international, wow. local. Wow. I've gone to Scotland to speak, you know. Wow. Um, it, there are so many people, and those of us who are born in a raise are called second gens, and what it does to the brain, intentionally what is done to our brain is a uh, very specific things and carves you in very specific ways. So the more I am able to look at that, face that, recognize it, call it out, you know, I, you know, the power of words, right? So I've learned to say things like that's the cult talking or that's what was done to me. Or I still remember the day when my, my therapist, current therapist said, do you think you should stop calling him the Messiah? Like, yeah, now I call him moon. Like I will say the Messiah when I'm telling the story, but like there's so many, it's so it's, a lot of meditation, which doesn't work for some people with trauma. A lot of meditation, a lot of, I walk around with my hand on my heart all day long. Thank you, Tara Brock. Loving myself, telling myself I love myself every single day, taking care of myself, finding ways I'm looking out the window, right? Finding ways to like look at the sky and feel joy. I do anything that eases this. And the meditation allowed me to have the space to see it. So the more I can like see it, see what was done, how it was done, how it affects me and know that I'm not it. You know, before the book came out, I used to think I was still damaged. I'm not damaged. I have damaged. But in fact, in the book, my, my older kid read it, 
years ago and then read it again and we were going through it because they annotated it all over the place. And they came to this part where I talk about meeting their dad and I'll talk about a relationship. And I said something like, you know, of course, like any relationship, we drive each other crazy. And I know the scars from my childhood are difficult and, and drive them crazy. And my kid is like, what the? And I, and I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize I was in there. I wrote that so long ago. I would never say that now, right? But I, for a long time, I did look at, I must be, you know, I'm damaged. I have problems because of everything that happened. That is not true. Right? The truth is, like everyone else, I'm glorious and wonderful and spectacular and magnificent. And I have scars. How could I not have scars? Right. Oh, but I want to know is when you go back to the other side, why did you, I would love to be a fly on the wall over there and find out why you planned this and what lessons, look at the lessons you've learned from it. And you're right now, you're kind of inspiring people. That's you're becoming a role model. It's so interesting. I don't think I, I know I didn't think it all through when I wrote the book. Uh, I'm just the person who does things. And, um, but since the book has come out, I have touched people. I have changed lives. You know, the cult community, the second generation community, I know that I'm reaching, excuse me, reaching them. And then as I always say, my story is unique, but the themes are universal. So the, so much of what so many of my scars and challenges and, and the inside muck, right? It's not, you don't need to have grown up in a cult to have this, right? People have way different, worse, but not as bad, whatever experiences and have that same thing. So if I can spread a message of hope and self-love and self-compassion, then it's all worth it. Absolutely. Like, so lucky. Absolutely. I wouldn't wish trauma on anyone, but it gives, I said this to a, a young kid who called me at one point and I'm like, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but it gives you an appreciation for life that people who have not experienced or not realized they've experienced don't have that same appreciation for the simple joys in life. So absolutely, my story helps. I'm lucky. Yeah, well, I feel the same way because like I, I, I mentioned to you, I've been abandoned by my family. I had a very I had a lot of trauma in my childhood and I find that and it took me a lot to be able to tell people, hey, this is what happened to me. Um, I was. I was embarrassed for a long time. I felt shame, but you know what? I find that the more honest I become, the more I'm helping other people. And uh, we're role models to show you can move through it and you don't have to stay in your swamp of suffering. You can, you can make lemonade out of this, these lemons. You really can. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, you know, like the couple of days after the book came out, I was on Megan Kelly's show. And that night there was a book reading in the little town in which I live in Wayne. And I was sitting on my side porch in the middle of the day and my neighbor walks by and he goes, hey, what's going on today? And I said, funny, you should ask. So I tell him the story, right? Because I didn't share my story because literally when you say I grew up in a cult, it literally sucks energy out of the room. It's like this very, so I tell the story and three weeks later, I get an email from his wife. Thank you for giving us all the courage to tell our childhood stories. Because every, so many people are walking around with this shame that they don't need that's not theirs that's right. not true right and right. so if you were born you were born a beautiful it. person this stuff was foisted yes. on you it was their stuff that was foisted yes. on you so if i can share my secrets and help other people share their secrets and feel less alone then it's all worth it yes it, yes so tell us about and i'm sure that there are people listening to this who have kids so please share your wisdom about extremist situations how to stay out of them or how to get out of them. So the first thing I'm going to say is we are all susceptible, right? And I was watching one of the documentaries about Nixium 
And um, and they end it with saying, we're all susceptible. In fact, if you think you're not susceptible, you're the most susceptible, right? All it takes is being in the wrong place at the wrong time. There you go, right? In the wrong situation. So start with this. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. If it blames all of the right wrongs on this group and all of the rights on this person, it's not a good place to be, right? When people tell you they have the answers, that's what it is, right? And so it really how to stay out, right? It takes the awareness that, again, we're susceptible. And when people come with, you know, when they, years ago, we were, we were, I think we were in Charleston or something. And I saw what I think were Hare Krishnas. They weren't explained, just in street clothes, but Hare Krishnas talking to someone. I was like, that's what that is. And I walked the other way. Now I would go up and be like, don't talk to these people, right? When people come up to you on the street or when you're in any situation and start selling you this goods, right? Telling you again, all right, all wrong, all truth the us versus them, extremist situations, it's called the bite model created by, I think by Stephen Hassan. And it's when they want to control your behavior, the information you get, your thinking and your emotions. If you're told what to do or what to think or how to feel, or if you think that that's Satan, right? Or in the self-help groups, right? If you think that that's your monkey mind, all those ways, right? Be aware and reach out to someone. And if you know someone you think is involved or getting involved, do not tell them, it's a bad thing because they will only push back. Defend it. They'll they defend it. You will lose them, right? So the only, really, they used to deprogram people. They used to kidnap and deprogram people. And that's that happened to a friend of mine. She couldn't, she had her daughter kidnapped. It's horrific. It, they did it. It was horrific. It is horrific. Now what they say is just stay in contact. If your kid gets involved, stay in contact. Excuse me, as I say this, if you know someone in QAnon, don't scream at them find a way to stay close to them, like find a way to find the humanity with someone and stay with them so that they can begin to have a conversation with you. Because as soon as you, if as soon as you told me that Moon was wrong and evil, you would have lost me to, you know, to my Danny's credit, he never spoke evil about the church. And only now do I realize how hard that was. And he's like, maybe I should have. And I said, if you had ever said anything evil about like negative about Moon or negative about our mother, you would have lost us even more no way around it. So it's really about being aware and staying in close contact with someone who you think might be in trouble. And there are people who do that now. If you go and you Google cult survivor, there, there's an organization called ICSA, Interna International Cultic Studies Association. They have names of therapists who can deal with people in cults, of interventionists who can help you if your kid's getting caught in a cult, or your parents are getting caught in a cult, they get help. There's so much help that there wasn't help back when I was, there just wasn't. You, you wanna know something, This for that information alone, this is a special interview, because this could help so many people. Thank you, Lisa. And what is your advice for anyone who feels hopeless or damaged beyond repair? Holy moly, and so many people do. Yeah. So this is when I say there is hope, and you are not damaged. And those are the lies in our brains, you know, from my work as an executive coach and a leadership consultant and from my life, you know, stuff happens when we're kids and we make up lies, we interpret the world in ways that save our lives, protect us. And now as we're, when we're adults, they literally are working against us. 
right? And so if you feel hopeless, reach out and talk to someone. If you feel damaged beyond repair, find a therapist, find a self-help group, find other people who can go, yes, I know what you like. I feel the same way. No, there's hope, right? There is always hope. And I, again, I walk around with my hand on my heart all the time, right? I say, you know, as a species, we're way too hard on ourselves. We're self-critical. We're self-judging. We're self-lambasting. We're just mean. Be nice to yourself. Take care of yourself. Get yourself a glass of water, a cup of tea, reach out and talk to a friend, find someone to connect with, find someone to talk to. Reach out to me, for God's sake. I'm not the end all and be all for anyway, but I have a lot of resources to share with people. Like just, there is hope. There is hope. There's hope. And you don't have to, you don't have to, you've been beaten up. You don't have to add to it by beating yourself up. Which is what we do, which is what we do. And so, and, and then you beat yourself up for beating yourself up, right? And yeah, no, stop. Absolutely. It's okay. Of course. The, one of the most amazing things I've learned to say, I say to myself, I say to clients, right? of course I react that way. I have trauma triggers. I may always have trauma triggers. How could I not? Of course, my first response might be fight, flight, or freeze. How could it not? It's in my body. Of okay. course. Take a breath. Yeah. Okay. Just at this point, I would like to give kudos to your husband, Bruce, <laughs> because he must be very supportive, very special, and understanding, and love you a lot. So, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, why were you inspired? What inspired you to share this story? And I'm glad you did. And how has this background helped your leadership, consulting, and coaching work and helped you to create this life of intention and joy? So, I, again, I don't think I thought it through when I wrote the book. I crawled into Al-Anon and I would tell my story. And as my brother says, when you're in this room of like hundreds of people, all of these stories and you tell your story and their jaws all drop, you go, oh, something weird. And I so I, and people, it's <laughs> like every month of prize. And people kept saying, you should write it, you should write it. So I just started writing it. And in the beginning, it was a half self-help, half memoir. And I got great rejections that said I couldn't write that. And then a... Uh, agent said write it and I'll represent you and I wrote it and she couldn't and then I just kept going and so I just put it out there because when you put something in front of me I will do it and I love to write it was a wonderful experience to write that said now I know why it's out there right so I can spread my message of extremist situations exist they're, they're dangerous they're prevalent they're intoxicating for anyone who feels hopeless or damaged beyond repair there is hope and you're not damaged and we just all need a huge dose of self-love and self-compassion those are my messages and if my story can help it's amazing and and so my work right so i do i own a leadership consulting and executive coaching firm i've been doing this since 1995 i love what i do i'm very lucky but i would always keep it separate my my past and my work because again if i would tell my story it would suck all the energy, it would make everything about me and it just took over. And then when the book came out and clients started reading it or I would walk into a meeting with someone for the first time as a prospect and they'd say, I Googled you. Because if you Google me, I think I'm still the first three pages. If you Google Lisa Cohen, if you Google my brother, I'm still on the first page because I got a lot of publicity. I started, I'm out there. I'm complete, my bio now, I think, I, I don't know if my business partner has approved it or not, but I'm using it anyway. My bio starts with my line, the best seats I ever had and the best cocaine I ever had. Because we all have secrets. We all have shame. We all have something. And I, by sharing my story, allow people to look at the craziness in their head and the wacky things they've learned and what they've done to cope and survive. And it just gives a sense of, you know, hope right and so my my coaching and my consulting work has gone to a much deeper level of what our brains do why our brains do it 
Ah. shift them, right? A brain is clearly not a muscle, but I like to talk about it as a muscle because we really have the ability to take it and move it to like, all we do all day long is make up stories about ourselves, about other people. That's the way our brains work. We have no other choice, but we can be like, oh, maybe that's a story. Let me figure out something else. Like we have more power to be nicer to ourselves and nicer to our clients. I mean, clients to our, to the world, right? To others, you know, than we think we do. <laughs> I just, it's funny because our, my business partner, her name is Robin and we're coaching this group and she was working with the senior leaders of a, of a not-for-profit. And one of them, the one I'm coaching is like, yeah, my coach keeps telling me to be nicer to myself and take care of myself. And one of the people that Robin's coaching goes, my, my, my coach doesn't say that. <laughs> I, do, like, I preach what I've learned, like, yes, this happened to me. Here's the tools. Here's tools from Al-Anon. Here's tools from positive psychology. Here's tools from therapy. Here's tools from mindfulness, whatever the heck it is, right? Because that it's so, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And for the first time I am knowing to myself, coaching someone who actually grew up in a cult. Wow. She, she, she's like, oh my God, you understand what I mean when I say this? And I'm like, I completely understand. Right. So it's, the ability to be honest and authentic, I've always been mildly authentic, but to be completely authentic about all of it is such a gift. And I think my work is much deeper. I have a Absolutely. One, one client who, when he read the book, he, you know, he very nicely posted on LinkedIn. We always knew you were amazing at what you did. Now we know why. That's amazing. Well, the other part that I think is you've become a role model to show people that no matter what you've experienced, no matter how bad it was, you can heal yeah. You can heal and move through it and you can find space and joy in your life. I know people who are damaged and they, they think they have joy, but their story weighs them down and they're still carrying it like a backpack everywhere they go. Yeah. And uh, you, it's not, you don't, so you're, you're a role model for that, that you can, you can, you, if you're with a lot of work, you can drop that backpack. Yeah, can I am too. I am too. Or you can drop it again, or you can go, oh, I dropped, picked it up and drop it again. Exactly. You know, um, tell us about, well, we've been talking about the importance of self-love and self-compassion when it comes to healing. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about, about healing with, with our audience? Oh my about how important it is. Why should people go to all this trouble? with all the pain to confront their pain. I was, I was, you know, in, in the town, little town in the coffee shop, great coffee shop, having coffee with someone, a friend in the neighborhood who uh, revealed to me, said something, you know, offhand about molested when he was a kid. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, okay, I'm not a good person to talk to about trauma because I will talk to you about trauma. Right. Trauma changes our bodies, trauma changes our minds, trauma changes our DNA, trauma affects us in a lot of deep ways. But, and the light when you get to the other side and not like, oh my God, my trauma will never affect me. It's, it's part of me, whatever. But that the light, the joy, the possibility, the hope, the beauty, the love that can fill our heart that I didn't even know I was missing, that I thought I had even four years ago. I'm like, I'm good. Like my therapist came to the book reading. I'm like, let's have lunch. And then 
a couple months later, I was like, never mind, let's go back into therapy. Um, the joy, the possibility when you do the work, when you can show up and you know, when I can, I'll just talk to me, when I can show up and look at the, like the things in my brain and be able to know them and know where they come from and know I don't have to believe them and know when I can't help but believe them, I can still reach out to someone or take care of myself or it'll pass or is such light and love and joy. I'm repeating myself, but it is such a possibility. Okay, it bears repeating. It's That's true. A possibility, right? It's a lot of work. My friend was like, why should I do this? I'm like, because the freedom that you don't even know Right. The thing is, when you grow up in a certain way, you don't like I knew my childhood was weird, clearly. Right. But you don't know. It's all, you know, so you don't know it's bad. You don't know it's hurt you. You don't know any of that. You don't know it could or should be different. And then when you like go through the therapy or the work or whatever you do to heal and you're like, oh, my God, I didn't even know I was still, you know, so caught. I've been at this for decades and like I thought I was great and I still was not allowing myself to have wants, have needs, have boundaries, say no, own my space, like all those things I was never allowed to do and had to never do in order to survive, I'm still cracking it open. And then the possibilities and the freedom is, and the ability to love with all my heart and connect with strangers and family and friends and heal with my parents and- Well, it's sort of like, called, for me, it's clear seeing and clear yes. feeling. Yes, that is the way to say it. It's a good thing I don't speak for a living, right? It's a good thing I don't do you know, keynote speeches for a living. <laughs> because, I mean, because of all the healing I've done, it's amazing because you don't have all this this cloudiness, this fogginess, the pain, the trauma kind of sitting between you and you don't realize it until you heal it. Yeah what a feeling it is for those things not to be standing in the way of all your experiences and your sensations. So now, how can our, the members of our Grief for Me Birth podcast audience connect with you? And do you have an offer for those who are part of book clubs? And boy, would she be a great person to interview in a book club. And, uh, you know, tell, let it rip. Tell everybody so my all about writing, you. My writing website if you can spell my name, the last name is K-O-H-N, Cone, is Lisa Cone Writes, L-I-S-A-K-O-H-N-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. That is my writing personal social media, at Lisa Cone Writes on Instagram, at Lisa Cone Writes on, tweet, on Twitter, you know, at Lisa Cone Writes on Facebook, you know, this is a little different on LinkedIn. But again, if you Google me, if you Google Lisa Cone, you will find me. I love when people reach out to me. I clearly, I am passionate about this. I love talking about this. I am doing, I do a lot of keynote speeches. I do a lot of teaching about it and I will come to any book club. That's what Irene is referring to. You know, if you're, well, COVID aside, if you're local, I'm there. Well, maybe you'll do it on Zoom for some people. I'm there and I will Zoom anywhere. I've Zoomed different countries. I Zoom, yeah, because... Yeah, I love, I will answer almost any question, if not any question you ask me, as long as it's not about my current immediate family, I'm all yours. You can ask me anything and I will tell you the truth as weird as it is. So yeah, I please reach out, please share, please let me know and please invite me to your book club if you want. And if you if you go on my website and you can order, there's a link to go to the bookstore in town and they will call, they call me and they're like, come and sign another one. And I will autograph a book. Oh, that's wonderful. That way. Absolutely. It's an indie bookstore and it's personalized. So there it's you go. Marvelous. And of course you're on Amazon too. 
I'm on Amazon. I'm free on Kindle. I only, you know, and, and if you grew up in a cult, I will send you an electric copy of my of my book for free because I'll, I really just I'm not I'm not I'm just doing it to spread a message and read people, reach people. That's why I'm out here That's doing it. it. And the, it sounds like you found the joy in life, but would you like, do you have any tips for joy in life that you'd like to share with members of our, of our grief and rebirth audience? Yeah, so joy is a choice, sometimes more accessible than others. But what I highly suggest to my clients, to myself, to everyone I know, is that for me, like I find the things that bring me joy. So I, again, I'm looking out the window for whatever reason, the sky, the trees against the sky, if I'm having a hard day, that works. In the right seasons, those of you who know me, it's the yellow birds, the golden finches, like they will, I know the way they sound, I know the way they fly, I know the way they look. You know, I look for things, I create things. I create, I, uh, when I was traveling to Minneapolis where my older child is and there were no yellow birds, I thought, well, I need something red. Okay, it'll be like red apples and red hearts or something. And then I was biking every day and every day, every bike and every single person that passed me had something red. Oh, wow. Like, See, the universe is sending me joy. Like I actively go out and create things to make my mind find joy. And it sounds wacky, but it works. I think it sounds wonderful. Yeah. And I do walk around with my hand. I did. I, I skied into a tree right before COVID and, and my, my younger child said, see, now you have an excuse because I broke my sternum. Now you have an excuse to have your hand on your heart all the time. I walk around with my hand on my heart. I tell myself I love myself every morning. You know, I actively love people. I'm the one who hugs people. I'm the one who's gushy, mushy, whatever. I do anything to live in love and joy just about. So yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Lisa, to the moon and back, a childhood under the influence is beyond inspiring as it shares the ways you overcame your upbringing to become the happy and successful person you are today. Your amazing story about overcoming parental abandonment, substance abuse, and emotional trauma while coming of age in New York City is truly well-written and compelling as it reveals that it, is a, that it is indeed possible for a person to leave absurdity and horror behind and create a life of intention and joy. Thank you from my heart for this riveting in the interview, which has surely provided much food for thought to members of our grief and rebirth audience, especially those who continue to let their childhoods hold them back. I applaud you for the many ways you chose healing and rebirth. You're a tremendous role model. Thank you again. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Mm -hmm.